If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, welcome to IKEA, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's podcast, we have a lecture from our 2019 History Weekend event in Chester. The speaker was the University of Chester archaeologist Professor Howard Williams, who specialises in mortuary archaeology. That's the excavation of burial sites. Howard spoke to our audience about some of the ethical dilemmas that archaeologists face when dealing with human remains, and also gave his thoughts on one of the biggest archaeological debates of recent years. Whether a Viking burial unearthed in Burka in modern-day Sweden is evidence of the fact that Viking women could be warriors. And this will become clear, but just in case you're wondering, the zombie TV show that Howard is speaking about is The Walking Dead. Thank you and good morning. Okay, so let's get on with some death. You've got a hint that I specialise in mortuary archaeology, which in one level is a subfield of archaeology. Another, In another sense, it touches on everything about being human, past and present, about understanding our relationships with the dead, our loved ones, but also the remains of ancient people that we sometimes treat simply as subject matter and uh, material for display cases in museums, but also have a long-lasting and profound effect on our understandings of history and our understandings of um, (laughs) what comes next for all of us, so to speak, whatever that we may imagine that might be. And as a case study of that, I want to focus on Viking warrior women as a specific topic um, to get our teeth into, to illustrate some of the broader challenges In doing so, I'm deliberately being a bit controversial here. I'm going to be dabbling in areas where not only academics are heatedly disagreeing um, with each other, but also uh, the broader public in the last couple of years has been aware of this debate. It's one of the most viewed and discussed early medieval burial archaeology topics out there of the last two years years, the last 24 months, almost precisely, 25 months. And so in doing so, I'll be probably giving you some um, lots of unpublished ideas, but rooting them in broader debates that have been out there for the last two to three uh, decades. So as part of my research over the last 20 years, I've been interested in digging up the dead. I haven't actually excavated many human remains, but I've been investigating a whole raft of different ways in which archaeologists um, can tell stories from material evidence. And so we're able to tell stories about thousands upon thousands of people who never hit the written record. And in doing so, we're able to jump back millions of years but also look at recent times too. My interest has been in the early Middle Ages, the 5th to 11th centuries AD, but also I've pushed a little later. And I've also been involved in excavating Anglo-Saxon burials of the 5th and 6th centuries, um, excavating a Viking boat grave with my colleague, Dr. Martin Rundqvist, attempting to reconstruct some Anglo-Saxon funerary practices involving putting storing pots containing the cremated dead above ground. Um, in in little mortuary houses. Uh, This is a site here I've been putting a lot of attention into, the Pillar of Elise in the Vale of Clangothlan, a Bronze Age barrow we now know from our excavations, but reused in the early 9th century as a a monument commemorating the great-grandfather of the Powysian King Cungan and his great-granddad Elise 
He claims on this monument with the longest Latin inscription surviving in Britain from the early Middle Ages that his great granddad won great battles against the Saxons. And most recently also, at the top there, the smiling abbot, a rediscovered fragment of a 40, early 14th century grave slab and the first image of an abbot from a Welsh Cistercian monastery um, that we have on a funerary monument coming back to light. It was discovered in the late 19th century and then lost. And we've just rediscovered it and republished it with new high resolution photography. So this gives you a sense of how through my research, I'm interested in telling stories from the dead about the past. And one of those examples is, is cremation in the early Anglo-Saxon period, a rite that doesn't leave many traces, um, um, that, that are readily uh, comprehensible to a popular audience. So the, the, the cremation destroys the body, breaks it down, and the dead are buried unearned in what may have been little cloth bags, but often in highly decorated pots. But we can still, even with those fragmented remains, with our scientific analyses and our, our quantitative analysis, we can start to tell stories about who these people were and how they lived and what they may have thought about their, their afterlife. This is the excavations I took, uh, I was involved with, with Bangor University, as well as my own students and colleagues, into the, um, the side, the western side of the pillar of Elezeg, proving that we are dealing with a Bronze Age curb uh, cairn with a series of burial kists within. And as part of this research, though, I would make the point that we cannot treat the use of human remains and mortuary monuments as simply as tools, as information, as what historians would call sources. They're not just sources, they're people. They are once living people and we have a responsibility not only to um, tell their stories, but also a responsibility to respect and care for their remains. Whether it's actually human remains, I would also argue also for their mortuary monuments that come into our care and come into our world. And in that regard, in the last uh, few years, I've also been increasingly interested in the longer running debates about what we do with the dead. How and why should archaeologists investigate funerary remains? So in 2016, I produced a book with Dr. Melanie Giles of Manchester University, looking at this very topic with case studies from around the world, exploring how we dig up the dead and when and how we should do it. Should we should we only talk about stories that are relevant to people alive today, especially if they're not ancestors of people today? We have, I think, in, in many ways, a greater um, responsibility than to tell the stories of people who are ancestors of modern populations. Right the way through to how we display the dead in museums and how we talk about the dead in our publications, how we visualise the dead through art. The fact remains, though, that... The past presents us with many faces are things like this. This is Tollan Man, one of the most iconic faces from the, the Northern European Iron Age, preserved in a bog, having been killed brutally, including being garroted. Um, his serene face um, conceals a dark and, and, and uh, violent past, perhaps uh, some of the most uh, material testimony to the perhaps more disturbing and different aspects of looking at death in past societies. Uh, another controversial case study in the Alexander Keeler Museum at Avebury, a National Trust-run museum but set up by Keeler during his time as, um, as a sort of in custodianship and uh, on an investigations at Avebury, Neolithic monument, we have this uh, child skeleton excavated um, and, and now on, uh, it was excavated at Windmill Hill near Avebury and now on display in the museum. And uh, just under a decade ago, this particular skeleton became the focus of controversy and, and, a, and a request from a, a group of the, of, of, of the modern pagan community for its reburial. So this is, this is a, a focal point of modern contestations about what these remains mean to us today. And I would say that it's very difficult to be untouched when one sees a, a child skeleton in a museum. And indeed, one could say that many thousands of schoolchildren each year see their first glimpse of mortality in another child by going into a museum. And one could see that as a positive thing, and I personally would see that as a part of our educational role. Um, but also, obviously, not everyone sees it simply in that fashion. 
I'm only using these as examples to illustrate the many ways in which we have challenges and how we excavate and how we display the dead. Tollan Man was a local icon in Silkeboya in northern Jutland. He's their, their, their prized ancient ancestor that they, everyone's proud. They even made a museum for him. Uh, the Alexander Keeler Museum, we have an unnamed child skeleton that has received a new kind of modern day fame by being in that exhibition. And here another very prominent set of remains, but more difficult to apprehend. Here in the relatively brand new 2014, I think, Stonehenge Visitor Centre, a controversial development in itself. Human remains are displayed yet again. In the UK, we still feel confident to put these things in front of the public rather than concealing them from view. But in this case, the late Neolithic dead of Stonehenge, um, the, the very bones of the people who were involved in and reconstructing the earlier phases of this monument are presented in a fashion that's very difficult for the public to understand, almost like clean white bones, like art. Uh, very difficult to appreciate the complex ritual sequence of transporting the dead, burning the dead, that may have led to those remains. So what I'm trying to say to you is that we as archaeologists have a responsibility to tell stories about the past, but also to think very carefully about how and why we dig up the dead, display the dead, and write and visualise the dead. And I would say that some of these displays are vivid and striking, but perhaps not all of them fully explain and justify to the public what they are doing and why they are doing it. And I think many millions of people have probably seen these small collection of white um, remains. How many actually of those visitors appreciate um, that they're looking at the cremated remains of a person? Given that in a modern cremation process, one is handed back a two-stage process of burning and, and grinding so that modern cremated material looks like, like little white powder. Um, if you haven't experienced receiving the ashes of a loved one back, that may not be clear to you. But this is very different from modern cremated material we receive back from our uh, in, 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 you know, indoors, gas-fired usually, crematoria. But also looks very different from a skeleton. So do, do people even understand what they're looking at here, let alone realise that these are the bodies of people who, who are involved in perhaps one of the most worldwide famous ceremonial monuments that we have in our landscape? And then sometimes we deal not with the bodies, but the images. And as I said, the, the smiling abbots, now you can see him in Llangollen Museum, and this is the photograph done by Dr. Aaron Watson, uh, carefully lit, so you can see some of the features, one of many photographs he took. Here we're looking at a face of a person where we don't know exactly know where his body lies, <laughs> somewhere in the abbey at Valley Crucis um, nearby, I would imagine, a Cistercian house that was dissolved by Henry VIII in the early 16th century. You know, we don't know where his body lies. We've just got a fragment of his face. And then it leads to all sorts of questions. Obviously, we're not dealing with bones, but was this a portrait? Or did he look like this? Why is he smiling when 99% of medieval funerary monuments look rather depressed about their impending uh, afterlife destination? They don't look too happy to be going off to meet their maker. Um, but this guy's got a little bit of a smile. And what's going on there? And why is he holding what seems to be um, a pattern and a book as opposed to a chalice and, or, or a, a mitre? So what, what's going on with the precise choice this representation. And when we display even these fragments, I think we have a responsibility to these objects and their makers and the, the bodies that are absent. Not so, Just because bones aren't there, just because bones are absent, we can say, oh, it's just an artifact now. We can study that. I think there's a responsibility here too. This is the Daily Mail from 2011 reporting on a new TV show that came out. And the awkward advertising billboard that was, was placed in concert in County Durham on the side of the cooperative uh, funeral care uh, uh, offices. Um, and here I'm just going to, I'm building out to, to use this as an example of the many more ways in which the dead populate our popular culture and our society. And I think in many ways, this is an area where archeologists beyond our materials and museums, this is an area where we have a lot to say too. So the TV show, if you haven't watched it, is a, another, uh, perhaps the most popular TV show about the zombie apocalypse, which uh, obviously very few people believe really was going to happen, but it's, it's a powerful apocalyptic scenario for our modern anxieties about the future of our society, 
we have here a, a, a scenario that, that fascinates us. So what would happen if our civilization collapses? Regardless of the zombies, what would happen if we don't have electricity, if we don't have hospitals, if we don't have food? How do we survive? And a lot of the TV show is about what it means to be human, as a lot of these zombie shows are and horror shows. How do people retain their humanity or divest themselves of their humanity in this scenario? And one of the things they do throughout the TV show, built on the comic books, is humanity is defined by how you care for the dead. Both zombies you once knew as people and loved ones that have been um, killed by other humans or by zombies. And so the TV show is actually really interesting. Yes, it's within an American gun culture. Yes, it's, it's, it's a fantasy fictional world. But there's lots of archaeological themes playing out in that show. And also it's invested in our landscape. And indeed, archaeologists are part of this popular culture. We are busy populating the news cycle the, with new discoveries, reporting on each other's finds. So here, for example, the, the Richard III um, BBC News front page, Richard III dig, DNA confirms the bones are kings. So here we are, you know, Leicester University's fabulous, successful research project, but also chiming very strongly with popular interest in dead royals. We have some archaeologists that put a lot of effort into being scientific communicators. Dr. Christine Kilgrove is one of my favourites. She writes for Forbes and she writes about the latest news discoveries in funerary archaeology. So if you're going on to the news cycle, you can learn about the latest discoveries. Here, as an example, a, 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 a man buried um, with a knife replacing his hand as a prosthetic. So, and, and of course, again, allusions to certain characters in The Walking Dead, Merle, um, were played out on social media, media around this discovery of this, um, this knife-wielding, uh, prosthetic, armed, uh, early medieval warrior. But then I would say that some archaeologists have been vocal in other ways, and some researchers have. I would say that some archaeologists have said, no, this is too much. We've got to stop this. We've got to rein it in. A particularly nauseating example that no one individually is to blame is archaeologists excavating the body of a poor victim of the Pompeii natural disaster, a volcanic eruption, who was died with a huge block falling on him. And this became a viral meme of many a joke um, about the dead person and laughing at the dead, uh, you know, using it as a mechanism to laugh at our, uh, mortality and other other issues. And at one level, we have to say humour is a part of death and we should all be engaged with that. But equally, we have to admit, once images become viral, they're out there and being used in all manner of grotesque and tasteless ways. And uh, here, uh, a historian, I think she is, actually comes back and says, this is just not on. We should be teaching, um, mortuary archaeology and Pompeii should be teaching us to celebrate people's lives, not to mock their death. And I would totally support that view. And I would say, a bit of naming and shaming here, that some historians and archaeologists don't have a filter in their communication with the media and are happy to put out images of skeletons, mummies, with stark, simple descriptions as clickbait. And I'm thinking that we, as a profession or a set of professions, we've got to start thinking more carefully about what we're doing. If, we're, if, if in North America we can't even display human remains in museums because of long-term and um, appropriate dialogues with indigenous communities, if in this country we're having serious conversations for decades amongst museums and, and, and publishers and all sorts of other venues about whether we should be displaying the dead during excavation and in museums, how on earth can we then go online and just go, here's a skeleton, click and follow my blog or whatever it is. And so we have to be responsible, whether we're online or in the field. And this leads me to the issue of digital ethics, because it's not so much what we do in the real world now as much as what we do online. And there are some serious ethical issues ongoing. There remains a massive global trade in human body parts and in human skeletal parts, sometimes for art, curios, or just to feed the fascination of people with a particular interest in anything mortuary or perhaps a bit of a gothic bent. But there is an online sale and archaeologists have been actively involved in tracking it and, and, and writing about it. 
We have to be careful when we're talking about the dead. We don't fetishise the dead, and particularly fetishise violent and tragic deaths like our Pompeii individual. And I think a lot of what we do, even if we do deploy a bit of humour, we have to be very careful about not simply offending people. We're in a culture of outrage and offence, aren't we? But it's not simply about that. It's about valorising violence in the past and tragic death in the past. A long ongoing debate is, going, is, is happening in archaeology about how we combat and work around extremist appropriation of mortuary evidence, DNA evidence, ancient DNA evidence, mortuary evidence, and, and particularly by white supremacists, but also by a whole raft of other groups who are happy to use burial evidence as material indications of their, the ancestry of their ethnic group or their religion beliefs and so on. And this is a worldwide problem that we don't have an answer for. Some of my colleagues think they have very simple answers, but I don't think it's going to be that straightforward. But I wanted to flag up for you that this is an ongoing area of debate. Another thing we have to do is to be careful we're not profiting from the death, the dead. I'm doing that in a way uh, because I, I have a job at a university and I teach it and I sell books or pr I produce books on it. Not that I get any money from those books. They're academic <laughs> books with, with, with... I'm not making much money from them. But there is an issue about how we use the dead, images of the dead, it, to promote our courses, our books, um, our clickbait online to build our profiles. And so I think we have to be responsible and careful and also constantly self-reflect about how we do that. I have seen, even in the last year, many unprofessional behaviours during mortuary fieldwork and analysis, and including examples put online. And I think this is something else that some of my colleagues need to think very carefully about. I'm not saying they shouldn't show images of the dead during excavation. They shouldn't show any of our work going on, because we need to be public. We need to be open, and that's part of our communication. But equally, I've seen some particularly tasteless activities and things that could be taken wrong um, going on in the digital field. And my particular bugbear, if you want one, and you can probably guess this because I did write about the Richard III, not to criticise the archaeological work, um, but because I, of the broader problem, is we've got to be stop, as mortuary archaeologists, valorising celebrity deaths and ancestors. There's a whole, most people who are dead were not the ancestors of people who are alive today. And there is important. And most of them didn't live long lives and most of them weren't rich and named. So we've got to be very responsible not to make our mortuary archaeology just a, a subset follow-on of celebrity historians writing about named individuals who happen to be rich and get killed in battle or some other grotesque thing happened to them. This is a real problem. I'm sorry to be a killjoy, but it really isn't the way we should be going forward with our mortuary archaeology. And in particular, we've got to stop creating and sustaining bogus and problematic inferences. I would suggest that archaeology is facing a bit of a crisis in how it deals with the digital world, deals with the sort of 24-hour news cycle, and the pressure to create headlines that is perhaps driving, shall we say, stories that cannot be um, substantiated. <laughs> and that leads me to my case study. So, in 2017, September 2017, an open access online scientific publication in the, American, the prestigious American Journal of Physical Anthropology was published by mainly Swedish archaeologists, a mixture of um, early medieval archaeologists and DNA experts. And their title for their actual scientific analysis was A Female Viking Warrior Confirmed by Genomics. Okay, that was the title of the academic article. It was online, it was mass, it went viral on a massive scale. It was one of the most, it was the most viewed um, archaeological publication of the last decade. And at one level, I think that's fantastic. They hit, a, they, they hit a, a, a perfect storm of public interest, of popular engagement, of scientific analysis, combining DNA results, fresh DNA results, and a long familiar archaeological site. It's a World Heritage Site of Berka in Sweden. And in many ways, this was a massive coup for the benefit of us all, as, as archaeologists and historians, that we can, uh, one grave, a bit of DNA evidence, and we can change the history of how we understand this period. 
And at one level, therefore, I will not, I can't emphasize enough how important it was as a story to drive the profile of Viking period research by linguists, language scholars, archaeologists, place name specialists, historians. We all benefit from this. And it grabbed people's attention. Were there Viking warrior women? Well, yes, said the article. And it said that this grave, this chamber grave from Birka, BJ581, excavated over a century ago, right? This is not a new excavation, but it had, it's always been known in publications for this striking piece of artwork. This wasn't a field diagram. This wasn't, someone wasn't in the field there, sort of, as they were excavating, doing a quick sketch. This was done for national publications four years after the excavation. And it's been used again and again in every publication about the Viking Age. And it's been seen as a typical Viking warrior grave. Now, I'll give you a clue. It's never been typical. Um, and the inference it's a warrior grave has always been made because there are weapons there. Now, when the osteologists started looking at the bones that were in store, they don't have the skull, but they do have a lot of the other bones, they realised, I think it was as early as the 70s and 80s, that this doesn't look like a big, robust male individual. And it had been already suggested, based on expert osteological analysis, that this was a female skeleton. But the, the climate was such that people said, no, no, it can't be a female skeleton. It has to be a, a warrior, uh, no, the grave. It has to be the grave of a warrior because there's weapons there. And it took until 2017 for ancient DNA evidence to be samples to be taken from the skeletal remains to show that, yes, on current evidence, on the best evidence in the science we have, this isn't a male, this is a female. So what their article was doing was something really stark and really striking that really was a punch in the teeth for everyone's sort of lazy, conventional interpretation of this grave. And again, yes, thank you, archaeologists. Thank you, um, Charlotte Hedin, Sternia Jonsson et al. For, this, for doing that, for, for using the DNA to counter misinformation by previous scholars and a reluctance to accept that this high-status weapon burial could actually be a female occupant. That far seems clear. Now, what happened next was really interesting, and I tried to chart it on my blog, but I'll give you a clue of what they say. One warrior grave, BJ581, stands out as exceptionally well-furnished and complete. The grave goods include a sword, an axe, a spear, armour-piercing arrows, a battle knife, two shields, two horses, one mare, one stallion. Thus, and this is the key point, the complete equipment of a professional warrior. So they're saying all of those objects together make a warrior. Though some Viking women buried with weapons are known... Female, the female warrior of this importance has never been determined, and Viking scholars have been reluctant to acknowledge the agency of women with weapons. There's a lot picked, packed into this article. It's a very short, punchy article. Um, and, and what it's saying here is that, as I said, scholars have been reluctant to accept the association of women with weapons, and that we've, this is the first one where we've got such a range of compliments of female grave goods uh, male, male, traditionally male gender grave goods associated with a female skeleton, um, and they make it a female warrior within the sentence. Similar associations of women buried with weapons have been dismissed, arguing that the armaments could have been heirlooms, carriers of symbolic meaning, or grave goods reflecting the status and role of the family rather than the individuals. Let's look at 2013. That's not actually what Gadea says, uh, but... We'll come back. That was a, that's a terrible straw manning in the article of actually a junior career researcher who never said that. He actually is setting up a range of options, including those, but also suggesting they could be warrior women. But anyway, that aside, what I'm making the point here is they put a very simple, stark interpretation out there, which leaves very little room for anyone to disagree unless you have some inherent prejudice against the very conception of a woman being able to wield uh, a weapon or two in a past society. So I, took, I followed this with my blog, Archeodeath, and I was interested in, firstly, how the new story was treated. 
and I did a review of how images, mainly from the TV show Vikings with Travis Fimmel and Catherine um, Winnick and um, Clive Standen there, so my favourite great Viking actors and actresses there, you know, um, how their images were used in the TV story, and but also the broader appeal of the story. Why does this capture our imagination? So I, I reviewed all the, how this, this links into popular fantasies about women from a whole variety of different angles, uh, sexual, uh, violence, to do with the role of women today or the, women, the role women are supposed to have today or shouldn't have today from a whole range of different perspectives. You know, anything to do with gender identity and gender politics will get a big hit. And also it links into ideas of race. These are Norse women. They are Northern European ideals of barbarism. And I made the point that if we're talking about warrior women amongst the Vikings, this is feeding into a particular fantasy of freedom-loving, um, libertarian, equal-gendered Northern peoples to contrast with Mediterranean, African, Asian peoples. And I, I made the point that I think that is not without ramifications. I then talked about the images, as I said, there's Skyrim helmets and, 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 and really randomly stock photographs of God knows where that's from that were used to promote the story as well as Catherine Winnick. And then I went on and I looked at how the public responded. And I dared to look below the line on a couple of national newspapers at the vitriol of comments that were aimed at the archaeologists responsible who must be you know, must be sort of under the thumb of political correctness for daring to do some research on this grave through to the other, um, the, the other extreme of, yay, well done, we finally got proof. I then looked at how academics have actually responded. And what's really interesting here is a lot of academics went, yep, yeah, that's great, that's new, that's exciting, we'll go with that. And a few killjoys, me included, and other experts such as Professor Judy Jesh at Nottingham University went, hang on, this isn't that simple. How, how come we've suddenly jettisoned all these problems and we're saying we've got Viking warrior women based on one grave? And that led to all manner of storm amongst the academic community with people taking sides and, and, and almost sort of setting up little battlegrounds of their own, fighting it out. Mainly women against women, actually, uh, but also some male scholars involved in that discussion. And then I decided to wade in on the actual interpretation presented. And I made the point that most archaeologists know that weapon burials don't equate to warrior graves. That no one's been saying for 40 years, actually, unless you've been reading very popular accounts, very poor accounts, no one's been saying that if you put a weapon in a grave, that meant that that dead person was a warrior. And so there was a bit of rhetoric at work in the article suggesting that we'd always said that, and now it's a woman's skeleton, then it must be a female warrior. Well, that kind of unravels rapidly if no one's actually been saying that males with weapons are warriors. And we haven't been. We've been saying that weapons in different societies from the Bronze Age onwards um, are deployed as symbols of status, perhaps articulating kin group relations, perhaps ideals of martial identity, sometimes by individuals who may have used those weapons in life, sometimes by individuals who may have actually never grown up long enough or lived long enough to use those weapons. So in Anglo-Saxon graves, we have 12-year-olds and even 8-year-olds sometimes buried with weapons. So no one's ever said that it's that simple, that people treat the dead like the living. And yet the, the article was doing, being a bit cheeky and suggesting that we've only ever said that war, weapon burials equal warrior graves, so we can treat this as a female warrior. They also make an argument out of the burial location being a very violent place because it's near the hill fort at Berka, therefore it must be a warrior. And I queried that. I also queried whether the grave was actually complete because chamber graves, we know a lot of archaeological evidence, they were robbed because they are chambers, they're, made, they're sub, semi-subterranean houses that you could then re-enter. And some of them do seem to be robbed. So we don't even know if this was a complete single act of burial or actually the result of many stages of putting bodies in, removing objects over a longer period of time. There's also the question, they assert that all the grave goods are male. And actually, a lot of the items found with this warrior woman are high-status items you find in male and female gender graves. Horses, are they trying to argue that 
horses were only used in battle in the 10th century AD, and that horses were only used by men in battle normally. No. Horses are high-status transportation items. Put frost nails on their feet, you can ride them over ice in winter, winter, winter landscapes. In a summer landscape, they're the principal land transport means for long-distance travel. We know that we're looking at equestrian elites from the Roman period onwards. So a woman buried with two animals, a stallion and a mare, doesn't necessarily tell you they're her battle beasts to go riding into combat. And indeed, the use of horses as war horses is something very, very problematically interpreted in the 10th century. We're only really starting to see the use of horses as cavalry on the continent, and it's really disputable whether they're using them in Scandinavia, in that landscape, in that way. But that's another whole area of discussion. My point is, gaming pieces are not as aspects of strategy so that you can work as a military commander. They're entertainment for the elite. They are status items, and they would have been items that we know from the li literature um, would have been used by men and women. So those aren't male-only items. Was there only ever one body? And some archaeologists have suggested there could have been other bodies that were removed later. Was it a robbed grave? And, could, and the assumption of the article is that the only option of a female sexed body with male gendered objects is that this is a warrior woman, woman when, of course, people did raise quickly, the range of scholars raised the possibility that actually we know very little about gendered identities in the Viking Age. We know it was a, 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 a gender-divided society of men and women, but there are also a range of sources and hints to suggest that there may be a third gender in Viking society. And if you want to discount all of that research, because it doesn't suit your taste, you've still got the issue of potentially, was she actually seen as a woman at all? Could this have been a person who lived their life as a man it just doesn't happen to fit our biological uh, sexing criteria. So there's lots of other options I won't go into here, but I raised those issues. And then I followed the story as it grew, because inevitably there was going to be, I would take it to a public talk, and I took it to a public talk at the Grosvenor Museum. I presented them with the evidence, and I made them do a poll for me about whether they thought it was a Viking warrior woman. And despite me presenting them with all the cynicism and scepticism, they said, yeah, that sounds right. And then I, I followed the first TV documentary made about it, the much castigated Legends of the Lost with Megan Fox, which you can catch up with on YouTube, which was heavily derided because it has a pseudo-archaeology fringe element to the TV show. Um, and she goes into the Norwegian woods and has a spiritual commune with her grandmother's spirit, of which you can take or leave. And I think that was a particularly relevant or necessary part of the TV uh, programme. But there were other bits as she met with a range of Scandinavian experts and presented a series of key archaeological sites and historical sources that hint towards the historical existence of Viking warrior women. And I reviewed that as a very positive thing, because even though I wasn't convinced by the narrative, I thought the TV show did a good job of showcasing Viking research. And so when I said that, I got castigated by my American colleagues, who are, obviously have nothing but pseudo-archaeology on their TV, ancient aliens and all that, and they hated Megan Fox doing this because it gave another um, uh, avenue for crazy ideas about ancient civilizations and Graham Hancock rubbish to, to appear with historical legitimacy. And I respect their view, but I still maintain that the TV show did a good job when they talked to experts. So I thought the first TV programme about this was actually quite interesting. I didn't buy the narrative, but I thought it did showcase Viking research. And then it spiralled, because the way they showed um, the, 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 um, the Viking warrior women as in the sort of backdrop of Legends of the Lost was taken straight from Vikings, the TV show, and then even Doctor Who's Christmas special took on the same iconic figure of a Viking warrior woman fighting a 9th century Dalek. I don't know if anyone caught that one. Right? Okay. So, and, and archaeologists, of course, dig up the Dalek, you know, those crazy archaeologists, and it, of course, latches onto one of them and all sorts of fun happens. Um, but, my, but my point is that this has gone viral in another sense, that TV documentaries are now feeding into TV fiction. And so Doctor Who, Vikings, and in a, in a feedback loop. So it actually starts with TV fiction of Lagatha, goes into the documentary and comes back out again to another, another TV, TV fiction. And I followed it through because then the archaeologists waded in. Two years later, they come back with a new article in the journal Antiquity and they double down. And they say, yeah, a lot of people have criticised our interpretation. Here's more evidence. 
but we're saying the exact same thing. There are other ways to interpret the grave, they say, but we're not going to entertain them. So my point would be um, they have continued the same narrative. It's got weapons. There's nothing female in the grave. It's a female skeleton. It's a warrior woman. And so this year, a TV show, Swedish TV, STV, have produced an hour-long documentary charting the life of the Viking warrior woman and and sort of giving a historical narrative with archaeologists dipping in to give their sort of um, fictional narrative of a fictional named individual who becomes BJ581. And so here she is. That's her her funeral at the end of it. And various well-known archaeologists and historians weighed in in the programme pitching the, the historical reality. So Yanina Ramirez says, most ordinary Vikings would probably have had one weapon. It could be a spear, a short sword or an axe. But to have a complete weapon set, this is exactly what the, the article says, the 2017 article in 2019, to have a complete weapon set as grave goods was essential for a high-status chief. Those would be the weapons he would take to the afterlife, to Valhalla, that special place where the best warriors would fight and feast for all eternity. Okay. So... With that, there's no other way to interpret this other than a female version of a male chief. So the the feedback loop of archaeological research, popular reception, TV documentaries, and then back to the article has created this story of the Viking warrior woman. Am I going to be able to tell you it's wrong? Well, no, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's, 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 um, it's fake news. It's not. It's an important piece of new research that adds a in- really much-needed additional nuance to understanding both Berka and the Viking Age more generally and its military role. But it is based on a biographical fallacy that is at the very heart of modern mortuary archaeology, that the dead don't bury themselves, that the objects placed with the dead do not directly reflect the identity of the person lived in life. And James Whitley in 2002 calls us out on this. This is over 15, 16 years ago. He calls us out on old-fashioned archaeology, still in the 80s and 90s, still banging on, and TV archaeology does this all the time, about, oh, look, it's a, it's a smith because he's got a, a hammer in his grave. It's a surgeon because he's got some medical tools. We do this again and again, but it's wrong and it's problematic. And it's at the heart of the BJ581 story. So here's a, a wealthy uh, Viking grave from Galsel in Norway, and she's buried with a horse's head. Did she ride around with a horse's head in life? No, it's a sacrificed horse. The rest is probably eaten at a funeral feast, and the head goes in the grave. It says something about her. It says something about her family. It may say something about her views of the afterlife, but it doesn't, it's not exactly something about her personal identity. Likewise, she is dressed in this case with female jewellery and a horn and other elaborate ceremonial objects. Does that make her a priestess or a queen? Um, she's called the Queen of Galsel in the popular literature. But does, you know, could she have had other roles? Could she simply have died at a time of crisis and her family and all the other people who held those roles gave her the artefacts to articulate their aspirations for the continuity of their family? You know, a lot of death is about inheritance and crisis. And so we shouldn't think of the grave goods as the things necessarily owned and used by that person in death. The popular side, though, is that this has sparked a whole new range of interest in Viking women. And that is great. So the Viking Jorvik festival um, was women and the stories untold about women in the Viking age. And they, 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 this is their promotional shot of the Viking women. They, they're telling the stories of through their, their festival and had a popular conference, um, you know, different ages and, and different um, backgrounds, queens, warriors, you know, uh, uh, wives, all the different aspects. And so I think it's a positive aspect for our understanding of the Viking Age, but it does leave us with a serious question. Do we see these graves with weapons as those of warrior women? And this is where I want to end, because I want to give you a hint of what I think. There are a range of sources for the Viking Age that do tell us about the roles of women in society and the roles of women in using weapons and the roles of women in ceremonial uses of weapons. Most strikingly, this is my favourite ever academic book cover. And this is a cartoon of the Ibn Fadlan uh, 
first-hand witness of a Viking Rus funeral on the Volga River in the early 10th century. And here is supposed, this is just a cartoon version of the account we have of Ibn Fadlan's travel. And that is our, one of our few first-hand accounts of a Viking funeral. And it involves all manner of other performances, 10 days or more of intoxication and feasting, uh, the preparation of new clothes for the dead person. So they're not being buried in the stuff they're wearing, of course they're being dressed and clothed. The temporary burial for that 10-day period before he's put on the ship and it's burnt on land. And then a mound, a great mound raised over the, the, the cremation pyre and, and a, um, a pillar raised on the mound with the name of the dead person inscribed in it, on it, presumably in runes. Now, women have two key roles in this funeral. The sacrificed slave girl is not simply a high-status commodity. She is a performer to honour the dead man, and she calls to her ancestors and his ancestors. So she is absolutely central as a victim in the funeral. But also this shadowy figure of the angel of death, an old lady with her daughters, who seems to be a female ritual specialist who kills the slave girl and seems to have other key roles in the funeral. And so we have at least two very important female actors in this funeral process. And I think it's the angel of death that intrigues me more. And a range of work by other scholars, including Legit Gidea, Neil Price himself, one of the authors of the Viking Warrior Women article, have alerted to us to the importance of women in Viking society as shamanesses or seers, as priestesses, or a range of different roles as, as intermediaries with the supernatural and intermediaries with the dead, including individuals buried with these staffs. And we have a number of these. These are artist reconstructions. Um, and we have a number of these burials. This is the Trachrona grave that I showed you at the beginning that has a small little ceremonial spear as well as much else. Now, for graves like these and this one, a male and a female together, but the female seems to have the spear, we may be looking at something slightly different than Viking warrior women. And Lejek's research is suggesting that, and here's another one, a burial with a, 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 an axe. Um, these may not be warriors, some of them may be, but perhaps we're looking at women who have a particular cultic role and ceremonial role in life and in death ritual. This is another arti uh, artist reconstruction by Miroslav Kuzma of a, 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 an, an antiquarian grave of, of a woman buried with a range of weapons and a horse. And of course, even the Osseberg ship burial famously has um, axes, a pair of axes buried with it. So rather than saying this is a Viking warrior woman, and likewise these pendants, which show sort of women seemingly on horseback and women dressed as warriors standing, and most famously here from Horby in Denmark, this is seemingly a female with, um, a ray, um, with weapons, a shield and a, and a, and a sword, we may be looking at a particular ceremonial role of women in Viking period society. And indeed, the tapestry from Osebea shows seemingly female-dressed women carrying spears in what may be a funeral procession. Going back then, finally, to BJ581, I just want to quickly say that I'm not ruling out that this is a Viking warrior woman, but I'm suggesting that if that's our endpoint of this narrative, we're missing out a broader set of possibilities for interpreting this grave, one of which is that we're looking at a woman who had a particularly important role in fighting in this world and in the next. Going back to my point about ethics and the Price et al. articles, is that I'm not saying they're wrong, but I would say they have strayed into ethically problematic territory. Not simply, we can't blame the media, their original article and their follow-up article both double that, you know, articulate a very stark and oversimplistic interpretation, which inevitably the media and the public have taken off in different directions. I think, therefore, they have a degree of responsibility for coming back to this story. They've said in their second article, well, it's over to everyone else to do the research now. We've done our bit. Ah, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm not letting you off the hook. You, you created this whirlwind. 
You have a responsibility to be accountable for what you published in 2017 and then in 2019. And I'm going to hold them to account, whether they want to come and debate me here or I'm going to, go and I'm going to write something in a couple of years, give them time to pull themselves together and write something else. I will be addressing this point because it's a very important point about how we write and how we visualise the dead. We don't simply have a responsibility to ourselves and our professionalism. We have a responsibility to her and what her story was. To not just tell one story, but to keep the possibilities of other narratives open while they still are open. So with that sense, I'll leave you. I'm not castigating their research. I'm not calling them fake news. This is part of a healthy, ongoing debate that we should all have as archaeologists. But it has ethical as well as um, academic dimensions. That are, well, We have a responsibility to the dead and to the public about how we discuss these controversial and fascinating traces of past lives. Thank you very much. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Howard Williams. You can find more of his work on his blog. Just search for Archaeodeath. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Wild West. <laughs> <laughs>